in exhibit A, don't do this. Don't be this. And it's similar as we go from the Pharisee and the lawyer and now into the landowner this morning. This individual, or or the parable about the landowner, there's an individual here in the crowd that provides now, just similar to lawyer and Pharisee, he provides Jesus with the teaching moment um, on a very important topic. Um, If you look at the text real quickly, just for introduction's sake on verse 13, um, so, so we move uh, from last week's text into verse 13 of this week. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, if you're reading the text, maybe even in a Bible read-through program, you're reading it and it seems like we just took a sharp left turn in the text. In other words, it seems somewhat random. So he's been talking about the hypocrisy of the lawyers and the Pharisees and their legalism. And now someone, out of the clear blue, shouts out from the crowd, tell my brother to give me some of the money. It it, it seems random. Um, So the question has to be, as we approach this text, why? Why are we dealing with an issue of inheritance? Um, uh, Again, If you look over in verse 1 of chapter 12, again, just to set the context for it, in the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together, again, this sense of even trampling on each other to get access, to hear and to see, to observe all that's taking place, in that many thousands of people atmosphere, there has to be lots of shouting. Many requests taking place, people pushing upon the disciples in order to get access to Jesus, asking for multiple forms of justice regarding various particular situations, right? It's not that everyone was walking many thousands of people and no one was talking about anything and someone shouted out and gave the topic of the day. Like, oh, that's a good thing. We should talk about it. You're the only one who brought it up. There are many thousands, many people seeking something. So out of all of the discussion, what rises to the top to catch Jesus' attention that he himself wants to engage is the issue of greed. Again, presumably, many other things could have been addressed. And he chose at this moment to instruct the disciples following hypocrisy, Following legalism, he chose to address greed. So he intends then to use the greed or avarice of the individual to instruct his disciples, you and I this morning, that real life is not measured in material possessions. So the person thinking, I'm going to raise my hand and get an answer of, of justice here, becomes the object lesson of what to avoid. Even the thought of how he's going about it or the controversy that's at work becomes this teaching moment for Jesus to the disciples of what to exactly avoid. Greed. 
Notice in the text of verse 13, we'll begin to kind of walk through it together for the next couple of moments. Someone, just an individual, out of the thousands, in the crowd, said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, just pausing right there at the very first glance of the text, we don't know much about the person, right? So far, looking at the text, in order to help us understand what's being said here, we simply have someone in the crowd. So at first glance, there doesn't seem to be even necessarily something wrong with the request. Again, he's asking Jesus to satisfy what seems to be a dispute regarding the inheritance And from what the man says, he seems to be a victim. At this point, if we were simply reading, my brother is withholding an inheritance that is rightly mine. So he's illegally withholding. There is some sort of dispute taking place where if we were the bystanders and we heard someone say, hey, tell this guy, teacher, a mark of authority, you can weigh in on this issue and settle this civil dispute. And there is a dispute. And I'll tell you, I'm a victim of my brother withholding finances from me that are rightfully mine by way of inheritance. If we were to hear that, we would think, sure, get involved. It seems unjust. But similar to the lawyer of verse 45 of chapter 11, again, look over in verse 45. A very similar feature here in the text. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. Now, we've already covered this text about Jesus stepping on the toes of the Pharisees first and then standing up as this lawyer. And as he approaches, he does the same thing as the individual, um, some sense of feigned respect. In other words, it seems all right the way he's approaching it. Teacher, hey, help me out with this civil affair. I'm a victim. Just like the lawyer, hey, teacher, right? A mark of authority, of of deference, but could you please stop insulting us so much? We're kind of getting tired of it. And hey, teacher, right? Mark of authority, you can do this. We know about your reputation. You can weigh in on this civil matter. You're a just individual that we have heard and know. Could you please settle this dispute? So at first blush, it seems like the guy's a victim. And so what would follow would seem to be this issue of settling this inheritance score. But as we see, our Lord perceives more rightly the intent in the request, just like with the lawyer. Hey, teacher, that is one of the authorities. You're starting to step on our toes. Well, good, get your toes out so I can step on them harder. It wasn't, oh, sorry. It was, I know what you're getting at. I, I, I know what's going on inside. And same with this individual. Can you settle the score? You have greed and a covetousness problem. He sees what's really going on in the human heart. He perceives it. So he proceeds in response to the underlying intent of the request. Notice his response in verse 14. But he said to him, right? So you already know it's in contrast to what the man is seeking. So he's asking, please weigh in and settle the score. But Jesus had different 
directives. And the reason is because he knows what's in the heart behind the request. But he said to him, individual, man, persons, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? Now, consider, it's not that he is not qualified to weigh in on this judicial matter. It's not that he couldn't settle the score or look into the details and address the issue of if the brother was a victim and if somebody else was keeping the inheritance wrongly. That's not what he's saying here. I'm unskilled in arbitration. What would you approach me for to weigh in in equity? I don't know justice as well as the lawyer. It's not this issue of I can't. Rather, Jesus' response is to make the point that his mission has greater concern than settling civil disputes. This is significant for the rest of the text. Again, it's not that he's unskilled in the law or, or, or couldn't weigh in Solomon wisdom here. But the point is, my mission has greater concern than the settling of civil dispute. One author makes this comment before we proceed through the rest of the passage. I think this is really important for us to grasp about this, what's, what's proceeding in the passage. Quote, he was not showing indifference to the claims of legal justice. And please kind of go with me here for a moment in the passage. He was not showing indifference to the claims of legal justice, but he was insisting that there is a greater gain than getting an inheritance, and there is a greater loss than losing it, end quote. Do you see, so it's not our Lord being indifferent to temporal equity. It's not as though justice in time and space doesn't matter. But it needs to be rightly scored. That it matters, yes, but not to the neglect of the eternal concerns. This is a significant piece that should shape our Christian discourse, even in civil affair. Social justices, equities, no matter what topic we're dealing with, if we could take from this text, that as we see even in our Lord's response, hey, there's an injustice going on here. There very may well have been. Maybe the brother is withholding the inheritance, and this man is truly a victim in some sense in time and space. It's not that that's not possible, but the issue goes beyond a simple exchange of commodities. It goes to the heart. In other words, civil equity and justice in a society is an important topic for Christians and their concerns. But our attempts as believers to address these issues cannot be in isolation from concerns of the gospel. To do so, if we were, as, as a believing community, as, as believers, to do that, to, to get involved in social justice efforts, 
apart from the distinctives and calls for repentance and faith in Christ. Totally in isolation, as in one way, without ever addressing underlying redemptive issues that are involved. We just would go the path of theological liberalism. A quick scan of the last 50 years of church history would be enough, let alone all that was before it, to give way to theological liberalism when we separate justice and equity apart from any concerns or directives and calls for repentance and faith. Then we use the church and its stories as a leverage or power tool for social change. Again, it's not to therefore since it does matter that individuals actually make decisions in time to repent of sin and trust and rest in Christ, doesn't mean since that matters, therefore nothing exterior to their lives then does. It can't be this either-or or, or zero-sum game. We must address both this issue, but we must prioritize it well as our Lord does here. I'm not simply here to settle civil affairs. There is something greater in losing an inheritance that you need to be aware of. This is how our Lord proceeds. So then notice how he then does proceed through the passage as he uses this circumstance and this individual, as he knows the heart, to direct his disciples toward resisting the impulse of greed. Look at verse 15. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Okay, you can see the scene, can't you? Here, the, there, there's thousands of people. A person has the floor at this point in time. You know, if, if we could darken the entire valley area and shine a light on this individual, he has the floor. He makes the claim. Boom. Attention drawn to this scenario. And then as Jesus sees and perceives, of course, as the Lord, what's going on in the man's heart? He sees it. He addresses it in a moment. I'm not here to settle mere civil inequities. From the vantage point, because he sees the underlying condition of what the man's complaint is, greed. So in this analysis of the individual, he turns to his disciples who are nearby and tells them, take care. Be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Notice carefully in that response to the disciples that the warning against covetousness in the text, a significant piece to highlight, underline, circle, just simply mark, is he says, all kinds or all forms covetousness. That's a significant piece in the text. Take care. Be on your guard actively. Take care. Watch yourself. What am I taking care of? What am I being on my guard against? All kinds of covetousness. All forms. This is significant to note for three reasons. Number one, it means that Everyone struggles with it. 
This is a significant piece to examine in our own hearts. It doesn't mean that only rich individuals struggle with covetousness and seem to getting away with it, by the way. That's not the point, that people with money are covetous. It's not. Rich and poor alike, all conditions, covet. This is a mark of the moral law, the Tenth Commandment. Thou shalt not covet. It's a condition of the morality of human beings. It's important that we cast it in its rightful place, its rightful category. It's not simply a social ill or a social inequity. It is a sin that sinners struggle with. And it is so important as believers that as we speak to social issues, equities, no matter the category, we must remember as believers informed by Holy Scripture the underlying struggle and condition is sin of which must be repented of of which one will only do in the hearing of the gospel. Even if we made right the issue between him and his brother that man, apart from the gospel, still loses. So we have a better Palestinian community where both guys get equal inheritances and both will die according to the narrative and go to hell. That's not all right. We haven't brought full-on hope and change. At that point, we have not. This is an issue of the church that the church needs to be well aware of its calling, its ministry, and the rightful categories by which we speak to such things. Be on guard against all kinds of covetousness. In other words, number one, everyone struggles with it as a part of our sin condition. Number two, everyone is blinded by it. Everyone. Everyone is blinded by it. Notice how, how we see that in the text very carefully. Take care and be on your guard against all kinds of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Do you see the implication? Even in the address, what's being implied What's being implied as Jesus speaks is when your heart is filled with greed, you begin to think it does. That, 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 that's what's in the heart. And when we lay hold of a covetous mind, a covetous spirit, we begin to think life is full only according to my material wealth. We think that way. Otherwise, he wouldn't follow up and say, for one's life does not consist in it. In other words... You need to hear that corrective measure because covetousness drives you on to believing that. And it just sends you down that continuous pathway to more and more avarice. You, you can't break the cycle. You begin to be blinded by your sin. And you travel a pathway of covetous gain all the while spiritually dying or remaining dead. So he says, 
this isn't like, oh, that makes sense to me. He says actively take care and actively guard your life against all forms, small and big, that are covetous, idolatries, material possessions, because you'll begin to think that's what your life consists of. So number two, everyone is blinded by it. Number three, why it's important to grasp that the text is saying all kinds of, of, of covetousness and that everyone struggles with it is because number three, community is destroyed by it. The sense of community, a fabric whether it be social fabric of society, whether it be religious fabric of a church, whether it be civil fabric, uh, legislatively, whatever the bond that forms a particular group of people together, working toward a common goal, what that fabric is that binds you is destroyed by greed. The first first example of that in the passage is the brothers, right? Right? Verse 13, someone in the crowd said, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. In other words, he and his brother have a fallout. It's already destroying their common bond. What's destroyed the issue between the brothers? What what, what is the issue that's destroyed the fabric of their relationship? Greed. It destroys community. It destroys bond. It destroys what you work together to achieve. And we'll see it hurts society even more as we move through the text. But you see, the sin of greed or covetousness turns community. Again, no matter what community you're talking about, whatever the bond actually is that you're describing, that you're all together on, it turns that community into a collection of strangers. Each pursuing his or her own interests with minimal constraint and no care for others. That's what greed does. It destroys a common bond. It destroys working together. It destroys a sense of community. Instead of working together in harmony with love of God and love of neighbor, we are simply a collection of strangers, each pursuing our own interests. That's what's happening with the brother that comes to Jesus. Settle the score for me. He seemingly doesn't really want equity because Jesus directs the entire discussion on covetousness. Again, we don't have access to really what was going on in his heart other than what we have in the text. The individual is driven on by covetousness and greed. And it's broke down the barrier of the relationship of he and his brother. His own family is being destroyed. We could probably, if we, if we took a show of hands, we'd probably know that many of us have heard inheritance stories. Whether we're connected to them in our own family or we've experienced them through stories of friends and family outside of our individual units of family. Where inheritance came up and families were destroyed. Greed and covetousness, that's what it does to the sense of love of God and love of neighbor. It destroys the fabric and makes us strangers simply looking to achieve what we in our own isolated interests care about. And what is that? Ourselves. It's the direct opposite of the great commandment. So with this sense of broken down community 
and the greed that flows. Notice how this is maximized in the parable of how greed destroys community. And it ultimately destroys your own life as well. Notice the parable that then emerges for the, to make this clear. Verse 16. And he told them a parable. Saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. I will say to myself, self or or soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, sticking with the sense of social fabric and breakdown, driven on by hearts that are filled with greed, at first glance, once again, at first glance, simply working through the text, it doesn't seem to be, at least in, in my reading of the text, seem to be that there's really anything negative being presented necessarily here on the surface about the farmer. I mean, if, if you look at the farmer, it doesn't seem, there's really nothing wrong with the sense of having a plentiful crop. You know, praise the Lord for a plentiful crop. You know, boom, I, had, I have lots that are here from my hard work. Good. It, it doesn't seem like that's the problem. He has a really good crop. So there, there's something else going on in the text. There's nothing wrong with building bigger barns. Doesn't it seem in some sense that that, that that is agribusiness? Here you have a gigantic crop. Lord has providentially given, blessed. You have some smaller barns. You only have limited space and property. So you're thinking, how am I going to store all that I now have in order that I might make a living? I'm going to tear down the barns that I have and I'm going to build bigger ones because I'm going to put the stuff in there. Otherwise, I'm going to waste all my crop. Again, just simply working through, we could probably put many parallels in the moment of time right here with us where we've made strategically many of the same ideas come to mind or made a lot of the same choices. Well, I'm going to have to tear down this shed because i got eight more bikes going in there. I'm going to have the bigger, bigger shed, put the bikes in there. Whatever the idea, it doesn't seem like, ooh. You know, so, so when we think, so what's going on exactly here in the text? Again, a, a final comment. If there was just a simple sense of retirement in verse 19, I said to myself, self, you've got a lot. Chill, relax, sit back, watch the world go by for a bit. It's like, no, not allowed to retire, not allowed to relax, make hay. There's some sense of, okay, so what, what, what's going on here? These categories seem somewhat benign or Almost just normal. However, we have a little bit of a note in our minds for how to read the text very carefully because the parable is meaningful in connection to the covetousness that's already been presented to us. So we need to read the farmer's behavior and actions in a particular light. The particular light we need to read it when is covetousness. So notice if we look carefully Consider the greed that is actually at work in the actions of the landowner. The first thing we notice about the landowner continuing to show us this picture of greed and how it devastates bond and community is his desire to maximize profit through storing the grain rather than selling it. Look at verse 16 and 17 carefully. 
And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Now think about that just for a moment. The sense behind or with the text seems to be that the market would probably be flooded. There's plenty of viable grains. There's plenty that people can take and receive. There's plenty for people to purchase. The picture of this landowner and this crop is, I'm going to take it and I'm going to store it. Presumably, why? Well, I'm going to have a season of verse 19. I'm wisely calculating my crop in 16 and 17 that I might have a life of verse 19. Look at verse 19, the outcome. I'll say to myself, self, oh, don't worry about your situation. You've got ample goods laid up for many years. While others struggle, relax. While they have a hard time finding, go ahead and eat, drink. While they struggle to get along, you just sit back and be merry. That's the picture of the landowner. That's how we read the text, given the covetousness that is deeply at work in the heart. You see, it doesn't foster community. And that's not just simply good agribusiness. What's at work is greed in the heart, and it destroys a community. Because, again, instead of looking out for my neighbor also, I store it away when you're going to have a hard time finding some, and then I'll present it out to you for inflated rate. Because why? Because we're a collection of strangers, all seeking our own interests at the cost of others with no restraint. That's called greed. That's what the landowner's doing. So he has got control on the market, control over his neighbor, and control over his future. Finally, kind of winding down our picture of the farmer, notice what takes place secondly. We know this, that he is acting shrewdly. Not just simply looking out for good business practice, but we know the motive and the action is actually to be shrewd toward his neighbor. Why? Because look at verse 19, 20, and 21. I will say to myself, self, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. How do we know that's shrewd? Because verse 20, God said to him in response, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? In other words, the question is prompted to him. First, he's accused of being a fool. And then the question is prompted, when you die, which, by the way, is going to be untimely and tonight. Who gets all the grain? Do you see? In doing the calculus, he completely missed the calculus. That means 
He's a fool. This is the indictment against the shrewd landowner. Don't miss the irony because that's the same that we must face. It's the same challenge that, again, it doesn't mean, well, I don't have enough grain to even be covetous. Resist, take care, watch yourself over all kinds of covetousness. Every sinner struggles with covetousness. Every sinner struggles with greed. It's just a matter of kind, time, expense. But everyone struggles with covetousness. Don't miss the irony of the text in our conclusion. In all the years of hard work, because to be a landowner, to be an agricultural farmer, come on, we can't cut the guy short. He's a hard worker. I mean, immensely difficult to grow a crop as abundant as that. But that's the irony. In all the years of hard work and financial planning for future success and a life of ease, he will now die an untimely death, sending him into the only future he didn't prepare for. Do you see how covetous blinds? Because you're going to begin to think that the value of your life is in your possessions. You will. You will. Don't let covetousness and greed creep in. There's all kinds of it. It's at various scales, but it all does the same thing. It blinds you. You begin to think, my life consists in the gathering of these items. And you'll spend your whole life working toward the gathering of these items or hitting these certain plateaus and markers of the good life. And the only life out of all that planning and staying up at night and working and working and working and working, the only life that you'll end up spending eternity with will be the life that you're absolutely bankrupt in. And you did no planning. Think about the math on that. 85 years to eternity. It's hard, I know it's hard to wrap our, mind, our, our, our minds around it. By faith we must. This life is but a fleeting breath. Final comment of the text this morning is simply this, verse 21 of our application. He's not the only one, guys. He's not the only one. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Covetousness blinds to where being rich toward God isn't even on the radar. What is the narrative of your life? What is its trajectory? Are you being rich toward God in the big picture and direction of your life? Or is that kind of not on the radar? Let's pray. Father, pray that you'll use this text in our hearts to weed out and address issues of covetousness and idolatry and greed. I pray we'll think thoughtfully and carefully 
about how we operate as a family, as we operate as a church, a collection of believers, and as we operate as a society in various spheres where we as individuals are influential, where we take our sphere of influence and we impact others. Give us wisdom in all of those categories to think through the issues of greed, covetousness, and equity in biblical categories that we might be as we struggle along in this age's passing away faithful. In Christ's name we pray, amen.